to give you a clear chance to do this here in the U.S. election. We have already seen Iran sending spoof emails designed to intimidate voters, incite social unrest, and damage President Trump. The intelligence community says both Iran and Russia have obtained some voter registration information, but that so far Russia does not appear to have done anything with it. Russia did obtain some voter registration information four years ago, too. Ratcliffe and the FBI director in an unusual late evening televised statement said Iranian and Russian activity was detected quickly by the intelligence community. They said voters should continue to have confidence in the security of the U.S. election system. The White House says tonight that President Trump has directed law enforcement, defense, and intelligence agencies to monitor any attempts to interfere in the election. And it says tonight's disclosure shows that those efforts are working. Lester? All right, Pete Williams, thanks. But as President Trump campaigns tonight in North Carolina, Republican Senator Mitt Romney making a statement by voting for someone else. Jeff Bennett joins me now from the White House with more, Jeff. That's right, Lester. Senator Mitt Romney says he already cast his ballot in the 2020 election. He says he did not vote for President Trump, but wouldn't say if he voted for Joe Biden. With Election Day fast approaching, the president's closing argument is clouded by controversy, including his attacks on Dr. Anthony Fauci and his repeated downplaying of the pandemic. Add to that new reporting by the New York Times revealing the president has extensive business interests in China and is linked to a bank account there. The disclosure dealing a blow to President Trump's attempts to paint Joe Biden as the one who's soft on China. Lester. All right, Jeff Bennett and I thank you. And join us for the final presidential debate moderated by NBC's Kristen Welker tomorrow night at 8 Eastern here on NBC. Barack Obama making a fiery return to the campaign trail tonight, appealing to Pennsylvania voters on behalf of his former number two, Joe Biden, and launching a sharp attack on Donald Trump. With now under two weeks before the election and 24 hours until the next and final debate, both campaigns are mapping their paths to victory. The president of North Carolina targeting Joe Biden, among others. We're covering it all, starting with Andrea Mitchell in Philadelphia. Tonight, former President Obama back on the trail for Joe Biden. I am back here tonight to ask you to deliver the White House for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Pull Joe Biden slightly ahead in a state that had not voted for a Republican president since 1988, until President Trump won by just 44,000 votes. I got my son working in a community just like this. In Philadelphia today, Obama appealing to black men, a voting bloc that did not give Hillary Clinton the turnout she needed. The easiest thing to do is just say, well, I quit. <laughs> but we can't afford to quit. Our ancestors, our, our, our fathers, our... our grandfathers are they had a much better excuse to quit than we did in contrast to president trump biden is off the trail preparing for tomorrow night's big debate telling a wisconsin station he likes the new measure at times cutting off their mics i think it's a good idea i think there should be more more uh, um uh, limitations on us not interrupting one another but sharply disputing accusations his son hunter profited from the biden name in his overseas business dealings it's the last-ditch effort in this desperate campaign to smear me and my family. While the president is in attack mode, Biden is trying to strike a closing message of unity. There is only one America. There are warning signs for Democrats in Pennsylvania. Since June, Republicans have outregistered Democrats and new voters by more than two to one. 
Former President Obama telling Pennsylvanians voting doesn't make everything perfect, it makes things better. Trying to get out the vote in a state both campaigns need to win. Lester? Tonight, the CDC's new guidance on close contact and spreading the coronavirus, just how long it takes to raise or reduce your chance of infection. It comes as cases spike in several regions. Miguel Almaguer now with what you need to know. As our nation climbs higher into a third surge of COVID cases, tonight a new CDC report finds it takes less than 15 minutes of close contact to become infected with the virus. Short and non-consecutive exposures to persons confirmed to have COVID-19 led to transmission. The new change in guidance, which comes as more Americans return to crowded venues, means you should still keep at least six feet of social distance, wear a mask, and limit exposure to others. And this increases the importance of what is a high-risk exposure and were you frankly close to anybody that was positive for COVID-19 for any period of time. The new guidelines come as new outbreaks or super spreader events are tied to close gatherings. In Minnesota, at least 20 Salvation Army employees contracted the virus during a conference. At church events in North Carolina and in Maine, nearly 100 tested positive after few took precautions. Some Americans are still spreading the virus because they don't know they're infected. Asymptomatic cases are still contagious to others. As a tidal wave of infections sweep across the nation, 27 states are seeing an increase in COVID deaths. He had said goodnight to the kids and he went upstairs and that was the last time I saw him alert and basically alive. Alice Roberts lost her husband, Rob, a 45-year-old New Jersey police officer and father of three who had no pre-existing conditions. I am really tired of pandemics, but you can't let your guard down. Tonight, her warning so other families don't have to share her pain. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News. This is Gabe Gutierrez in the Midwest, where tonight the region's second surge is spreading rapidly. In my 34 years as a physician, I have never seen so much suffering from a single disease over such a short period of time. I'm tired. I know others are tired. Not just our bodies and our minds, but our, our spirits are fatigued as well. The patients that are coming in are incredibly sick. They're requiring extensive measures. In Illinois, the testing line snaked down streets. A few weeks ago, this testing site in Chicago was dealing with no more than 600 tests a day. Now, it's up to more than 1,000. In Ohio, hospitalizations are at a record high. At a new nursing home outbreak in Indiana, four people have died and 37 others have been infected. The pain is spread widely, but not always evenly. A new study out today found that black patients in the U.S. were 72% more likely to be hospitalized than white patients. It shows that the persistent healthcare disparities um, that exist in our U.S. healthcare system have been exposed to a great degree by COVID. Shiny Gavin survived after spending two weeks on a ventilator. I never imagined anything like this will ever happen to me. At the same Chicago hospital was her mother, also sick. She died one floor away. Having COVID is horrible. Losing a mother is Horrific. It's better to wear a mask than to wear a ventilator. Today, Illinois reported its highest daily COVID death toll since mid-June. Lester? All right, Gabe, thanks.
Breaking tonight, after years of court battles, the Justice Department announced an $8 billion settlement with Purdue Pharma, maker of OxyContin, which is blamed for fueling the opioid crisis. Here's Kate Snow. The $8 billion settlement, the most dramatic effort yet by the federal government to hold a drug maker accountable for the more than 450,000 American deaths from opioid addiction. Our criminal investigation in this case revealed that Purdue placed pub profits over public safety. The company says it deeply regrets and accepts responsibility, pleading guilty to three felonies. Purdue admits it did not stop OxyContin from being diverted from pharmacies and doctors, and that it paid doctors to write more prescriptions. The company agrees to be restructured with future profits on OxyContin, paying for addiction treatment and prevention. In a statement today, the Sackler family, who created Purdue, said members who served on Purdue's board acted ethically and lawfully. <laughs> family members would pay $225 million to resolve all civil actions, but they could still face criminal charges. Critics say with Purdue in bankruptcy, it's unlikely the company will ever really pay $8 billion. It was clear the Department of Justice wanted to make a deal and make an announcement before the election, and they ended up making a lousy deal. It doesn't bring justice. It doesn't bring accountability. Tony LaGreca, whose son died six years ago after being prescribed OxyContin, thinks the Sacklers are getting off easy. Every cent they earn from selling opioids, I believe, should be paid back to the families that they've damaged. The settlement still needs to be approved by a bankruptcy court. Kate Snow, NBC News. Let's turn now to that big surprise. A major shift today by Pope Francis now endorsing civil unions for same-sex couples. Our Ann Thompson has more. Francis, cementing his reputation as the Pope of Surprises, saying in the new documentary, Francesco, what we have to create is a civil union law. That way they are legally covered. I stood up for that. Father Jim Martin, author and advocate for LGBTQ Catholics, saw the documentary. This is an historic step forward in the church's relationship with LGBT people and LGBT Catholics. Is he opening the door to gay marriage in the church? The Pope is not opening up the door to a gay marriage being celebrated in a mass, uh, but he's opening up the door to people being approving of same-sex civil unions. Church teaching says homosexuality is disordered. Today, Rhode Island Bishop Thomas Tobin called on the Pope to clarify his words, saying the church cannot support the acceptance of objectively immoral relationships. From his first press conference, when he asked, who am I to judge, Francis's papacy has been marked by compassion to gays and lesbians. Now the Pope says homosexuals have a right to be part of the family. They are children of God and have a right to a family. Nobody should be thrown out or made miserable because of it reaching out to those who've long felt excluded by the church. Ann Thompson, NBC News. NBC News has learned the parents of 545 migrant children separated at the border by the Trump administration cannot be found, according to lawyers appointed by a federal judge. The government calls them unreachables. A White House spokesman says many of the deported parents declined to accept their children back, but that is disputed by the ACLU. Across the country, we're seeing record early voter turnout. In Georgia, some 2 million people have already cast their ballots. As Blaine Alexander reports, it comes after chaos in the primaries disproportionately impacted black voters. I'm ready. Let's go. This is Election Day. Machine waiting those lines anymore. Never mind that November 3rd is still days away. We are ready to vote, girl. 
She's among the record number of Georgians voting early after learning a tough lesson during the June primary. You've been here about three hours. I'm not leaving. You're not leaving. So I'm done. That image of McNair and many like her. I was angry because it was just ridiculous. Led to state officials coming under fire, including Georgia's Secretary of State, who oversees the election. We happened to run into him recently, casting his own early ballot. Is Georgia prepared, or is your office prepared? Yes, we are. We're, I heard it's the counties getting them prepared. Uh, we had a call out for new poll workers. But critics say Georgia's voting issues go deeper than a lack of resources. Every tool in the voter suppression toolkit has been in use in Georgia. Andrea Young says the ACLU has spent years fighting against voter ID laws, closing polling locations, and voter roll purges, removing registrations of people who have been inactive for at least two general elections. All legal and all disproportionately impacting minority and low-income voters, often with fewer resources to check their registration status or change their voting plans. We want voting to be easy for working-class people, low-income people, the people who take the bus. But historically, it hasn't been. During the June primary, areas that were more than 90% black had an average evening wait time of 51 minutes. In predominantly white areas, 6 minutes. And for some in Georgia, there is lingering resentment over the 2018 gubernatorial race. This is not a speech of concession. When Stacey Abrams came within 55,000 votes of being elected the nation's first black female governor, she and her supporters point to voter suppression. The state's governor, who at the time oversaw the election as Secretary of State, maintains it was handled fairly. This is exciting. People are getting out. Now, with record turnout expected, this time 27 minutes. Much better? Much better. Both advocates and officials say to help make this election go smoothly, vote early. Lane Alexander, NBC News, Atlanta. There is record-breaking early snow across the northern plains and upper Midwest, nearly 8 inches falling in Minneapolis and more on the way. Parts of the Dakotas could get up to a foot of snow. In 60 seconds, as one major city switches to all remote learning, the crushing burden in this pandemic on teachers. Fisher Investments, you just say...